From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, taking a look at a program that is dealing with mental health emergencies in a different way. And at Vancouver City Council yesterday, Council was given an update on the program that puts psychiatric nurses right inside the police department. Well, joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Lisa Dominato, an ABC Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me on. I know you got an update, uh, a presentation about this at Council yesterday. Can you tell us a little bit, to remind us what is actually happening with this project, with with having psychiatric nurses especially dealing with uh, mental health emergencies and mental health calls? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, this is a really exciting and groundbreaking initiative between Vancouver Coastal Health and, and the Vancouver Police Department. And there's actually three prongs to it. It's an expansion of the CAR 8788 um, uh, mental health uh, vehicles, uh, which includes, as you noted, the embedding of two psychiatric nurses within the VPD to help with diversion of calls. It also includes de-escalation teams, uh, which includes uh, social workers, mental health nurses, as well as uh, planning for Indigenous-specific crisis response services. And so there's three pieces to this. Um, with respect to the psychiatric nurses, um, we heard some phenomenal information about how this is working to date. Um, they've had upwards of 1,300 calls, and of those calls that were triaged, uh, more than 50% have been diverted to more appropriate non-police response. And this is really exactly what we heard the public wanted, is to see more of a health response to individuals who may be decompensating, uh, struggling with mental illness or a substance use disorder. That seems like, like a huge number, uh, the, and I think it, it worked out to what, 743 calls, or, or like you mm-hmm. said, more than 50%. That seems like a huge number of calls that, that would have been dealt by police arriving in the past and now aren't being. Exactly, and and this is what we heard last term, was that we have individuals who may be in a situation of crisis, and they don't need a police response, they need a health response. And, so, and this is actually fulfilling an ABC platform is that we wanted to see uh, a better response. And I think VCH um, framed it best yesterday when they said this is about getting the most appropriate response uh, to an individual who needs help. And so I'm really excited about this. Uh, It's groundbreaking and I think it's going to really inform provincial discussions about how this might be replicable uh, in other municipalities. What about the funding? Taking a look at the the funding template or the uh, the funding chart that was also a part of this presentation and came before council yesterday. If I'm reading it correctly, like you said, dealing um, with car 87, car 88, um, and and other expenses, is it is the 6.85 million? Is that the price of this? That is the allocation for 2024. Um, there was some carryover funding from 2023, uh, just a little over $2 million. Um, and then uh, the grant approved yesterday was $4.67 million. Um, VCH basically indicated they needed some time to, to really phase this to get it right and some time to ramp up and do the hiring. Um, and certainly uh, it's a conversation we need to have be- with the province. Um, is if this model is successful, um, how does the province play a role in actually funding it? And how does the province play a role? Because I know that did come up in council yesterday with, with I mean, the city doesn't actually employ nurses. That That's a provincial, provincial jurisdiction. So how does that work with, is it the city, though, that is paying for these nurses? 
The city is uh, providing this grant to Vancouver Coastal Health to to employ these nurses, social workers. And so this is unprecedented. Um, we do have some partnerships where uh, we provide funding, for example, with BC Housing, where we work together on shelters. Um, but this is a really critical conversation to have with the provincial government. Um, we took this on because we heard there was a need to act from the community. Um, but it is a health expense. And so we are going to be having those conversations going forward. And an important part of this work is there is an evaluation component. And we want to be able to demonstrate that this works uh, so that we can say to the province, um, this is working. Uh, You should replicate another means province, but it should also be funded by the province going forward. I understand, too, there was somebody with Vancouver Coastal Health at council yesterday and was able to answer some of the questions and and by one of your council colleagues was was asked about the funding as well. Where when is the, the Ministry of Health going to foot the bill? Did you get any kind of clarification on that? We didn't get a clear answer um, on that. Um, I certainly think that uh, there's good intentions around uh, evaluating uh, these services and and sharing that with the provincial government. And certainly I think it's a good time to be talking about this um, as we head into a provincial election as well. Uh, I think all things are going to be on the table for a conversation. Is it a difficult precedent, though? On the one hand, this program seems to be working, and the numbers show that, that this is a way that is working, that is keeping um, police not having to respond to a huge number of mental health calls. But if the city is already paying for it and footing the bill, does it, does it set a precedent and make it more difficult to then go back and tell the province, oh, actually, you need to pay for this? You know, I'm confident we can have this conversation. Uh, we've seen the provinces already started to look at uh, funding uh, other sort of mental health cars in other municipalities. I think there's an openness, uh, but I think as, as it was described as, you know, proof of concept, let's demonstrate the success and, and then we can engage in those conversations. The city um, uh, embarked on this because we felt there was some urgency and we were hearing from residents uh, across the board that there needed to be some something more in place to, to respond to individuals in distress. Is there a conversation then to be had as well? If you look at the police budget and and the the amount of the percentage that that takes from the overall city budget, it is a big percentage. But if we now have this program in place that is diverting more than 50% of those calls, are there savings within the police budget that that City city Hall can can take? And not that, again, you would put it directly into Mm -hmm. this program because, again, it is provincial jurisdiction. But could this not also lead to... To savings when it comes to the police budget? Hmm. Well, I certainly think that could be looked at. I mean, currently, um, the staffing, the police officers that support CAR 788 come out of, of the BPD budget, I, I think is certainly worth looking at. And again, um, having that conversation about uploading uh, some of these costs to the provincial government, because municipalities are increasingly taking on more, um, or just having to respond um, to uh broader societal or climate issues. Um, And so I think there's a bigger conversation around municipal financing in general um, that we need to look at. And that conversation is happening nationally, provincially. Uh, So many municipalities are struggling with the same issues. And is it something you think that can be reversed or should be reversed? Because like you said, there are municipalities, and this has been an issue uh, for some time, that they are taking on more of, of expenses that aren't in their jurisdiction. And I mean, it's all whether it's a civic level or a provincial level, it's, it's all tax dollars. But does that need to be reeled in or be reevaluated and city councils go back to really focusing on what is in their jurisdiction? I think there's two things. I, I think there are uh, there are areas that 
municipalities have taken things on where the provincial government is better positioned or the federal government to fund. Uh, but I also think um, we are dealing with a pretty antiquated municipal finance system with our property taxes where um, we do have to respond to certain issues. And you take climate as an example, King Tides and Stanley Park and having to repair the seawall. Well, that was climate related, but the city still has to pay for it and deal with it. So I, de- I think there's two issues. Some things should be uploaded back up to the other levels of government. And then I also think we need a, a broader conversation about um, how we finance city services and, and reform around our property tax system. All right. Uh, Lisa Dominato, I wanted to ask you one other question. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that uh, the future of the park board came before council again, and uh, we know that the province needs to make a change in the legislation, needs to approve it to change the Vancouver Charter if this does go ahead to dissolve the park board and bring it into under the city umbrella. Uh, what did the what did the city council vote on or what decision was made at this point with park board? Well, what we heard today was an update from city staff about the transition process. So looking at the governance, regulatory and legal considerations, uh, as well as the operational integration. And so we received a a staff presentation that outlined some of those considerations, uh, what what steps need to be taken um, uh, to achieve this change, uh, which also includes obviously the provincial government, as, as you indicated. Does this move forward then to that transition or is it kind of the city getting things in order in in hopes that the the province will agree to it? Mm -hmm. Well, we do have a a transition team uh, that's uh, in place. It includes the mayor's office staff, includes two councillors, Councillor Kirby Young, Councillor Bly, as well as um, individuals who have some experience in this space. So we have former Park Board uh, Commissioner Catherine Evans, uh, we have Shauna Wilton, who's a former deputy park board for, and general manager for the park board. And so they are going to be taking a look at all of these governance considerations uh, as we move forward. And obviously, we're engaging in ongoing discussions with the provincial government um, around uh, these changes. Are you concerned at all that the city at this point doesn't have the support of all three First Nations involved? Well, my understanding is that uh, we have ongoing conversations with Muskegon, Squamish, Slavertooth, and my understanding is that they are supportive of this initiative, and uh, we have been securing uh, letters of support. And again, um, this is going to take some time, um, but I'm I'm hearing goodwill uh, on the part of Muskegon, Squamish, Slavertooth, but also uh, on the part of the province uh, to help us fulfill uh, this change. All right, Councillor, thank you so much for making the time today. Appreciate you coming on the show. Great. Thanks a lot. It is Wednesday afternoon, and that means it's time to check in with Claire Newell, president and excuse me, founder of Travel Best Bets. Claire, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, and you're you sound maybe a little sick because I am. My voice is not the same today, so you'll have to kind of. Ignore that. But there's a lot of travel news to talk about. And one of the things I thought we should start with, Jill, and I know I didn't have a time to chat with you about this, but it was on the list I mentioned is just some of the fake scamming websites that mm. are out there. And I think a lot of people are getting scammed. And it really, it's it, it can be in so many different industries. Just travel happens to be one that people love to to, to look at. They want to go on a trip. They don't want to spend that much money. And sometimes they're just getting caught. Um, the, the latest one are some imitation flight center websites that have been scamming some Canadian consumers right here in BC, as well as Ontario and, um, more, more recently in, in Calgary. So, um, they've been dealing, flight center has been dealing with this 
since last summer, and there's been more than 200 fraudulent listings. So what I thought I would just um, mention is some of the ways to avoid these scams, because it's not just Flight Center. It's lots of companies that uh, that are targeted. And, you know, what th- these scammers are really good at making their websites look like legitimate travel suppliers. So um, one of the things that I suggest is that you just double check the URL. Because what's happening is people are doing a Google search and something will pop up on their screen. They look at it. It looks legitimate. And then they go in and enter some details and maybe see a price that's probably too good to be true. They enter their credit card details and then they get nothing back. So um, look for the the official URL and make sure that that's entered. I mean, I do suggest that you call and speak to the agent maybe that you've been either recommended or that you've dealt with in the past and that you're going to the official website for those phone numbers. If you did something online, you've handed over your your credit card details, Jill, I you need to request e-ticket numbers. If you're if you're putting in credit card details and you're not getting anything back, Huge red flag. Um, if you get a robo call saying, you know, you've won a free vacation, it's not. If you have to hand over your credit card information for a free vacation, it's not legitimate. Um, and if someone asks you to pay like a wire transfer, uh, and that you haven't suggested you pay that way, or gift cards, come on. I'm like, don't think right. that's, or cryptocurrency. No official travel company is going to be asking for payment in those ways. I just want to avoid people being scammed. And so hopefully that will help some people just avoid these fake pop-up sites that are trying to target people who just want to travel. Yeah, and I had seen that one story. Awful. I mean, awful that anybody's getting scammed at all. But this was a, it was a, I think a Vancouver man out almost $2,300 through one of these scams. A lot of yeah. money thinking he was buying tickets and it was a completely bogus site. Yeah, and this is someone who had been booking tickets through that company for like 30 years. He was going to um, pick up some tickets to South America. So it was a big investment. But he booked online, and when he walked into the office, yeah, there, the booking didn't even exist, and so it would just be heartbreaking. So hopefully, um, the credit card company can can you know do something about that. But I'm not really sure. So I, I, I you know didn't get more details on that other than that this has happened, um, and it's super super unfortunate. All right, good advice though, and a reminder to always be wary of that and double yeah. check everything with those scams. More and more of those scams popping up. Uh, let's yeah. talk a little bit more about the 737 Max jets and a new issue there. Yeah, another blow to Boeing's reputation. Um, but this is something that uh, they have found before the actual aircraft have been delivered, which what Boeing has done based on the fact that they're under the microscope by FAA, by the NTSB, by Boeing um, itself, as well as the airlines that are involved, um, what was what's come to light is that an employee has for for one of Boeing's suppliers, they actually they actually um, build about seventy percent and deliver fu- the fuselage to Boeing. It's called Spirit Aero Systems. Well, anyone involved in the whole process of building aircrafts at Boeing now has been asked if you're an employee and you notice something that's not right, 
let's speak up, let's identify the problem, and let's fix it. So I, I don't think this is going to be the only, I hope it's not the only problem that comes out. I mean, there's probably hundreds, hundreds, maybe millions of parts um, for one of these aircraft. And what they found is two holes, drilled holes, that weren't up to the, you know, the engineering specifics that Boeing wants. So um, they've identified the problem. They're going to they're going to fix it before these 50 undelivered aircraft are actually going to be handed over to the airlines. But it's another blow. But what I'm happy with is that, you know, you're taking a step back. They've asked for people to identify issues. And let's hope that if there are any others, that they come to the light, they're fixed before they, they're delivered and uh, we move forward. Yes, that uh, seems like the, hopefully that's how things play out and the best scenario there. Let's yeah. talk as well about uh, potential this uh, happening uh, and uh, a big impact on Lufthansa. Yeah, as we speak. So, yes. um, you know, they're nine hours ahead and this was an unfortunate strike that's going to affect about 100,000 passengers. Between 80 and 90% of Lufthansa's flights, including the ones from Vancouver, could be affected. So if you are traveling on Lufthansa um, and continuing on, or just landing in one of Germany's busiest airports. Frankfurt is, of course, uh, serviced by by the flight from YVR, Munich, but also Hamburg, Berlin, and Dusseldorf. So this is a really unfortunate, it's a strike by some of the security staff that, that, that grounded it. And it's going to be a rotating strike until this is settled. Um, so luckily, it is not high season for Europe at the moment. But I know people who were on that flight, um, that one that was leaving today. So just expect some um, cancellations and delays in, in those flights if you are All traveling right. to Europe or on Lufthansa. All right. And I'm guessing, too, this is the um, the one-day strike. But I would imagine like a lot of job action, if there isn't any common ground or if a deal isn't reached, there could potentially be more job action in the future. That's that's exactly right. So I, I say that if um, it's not settled in in the the coming days, and you've got an upcoming flight for Lufthansa, you'll need to watch your flight details very closely. All right, that is happening uh, as you've said as we speak. Uh, let's talk about uh, some more options if you are traveling on WestJet. Yeah, so there's um there's a lot more details about. I'm just going to kind of do high level, but um, WestJet has announced some significant increases to their West. Uh, West Coast, so really they're coast-to-coast travel, um, but we are getting 15 new routes in Western Canada and 11 new ones for Eastern um, Canadians, and it's going to just be improved connections so to um, Europe, so Ireland and the UK, uh, but also other European destinations, sun destinations that we all love, California, um, Arizona, Hawaii, Florida. From the West Coast, one of the things that's coming back will be a nonstop service between Toronto and Victoria. And I know that was really popular last year. Um, they're also from the West Coast. There'll be Vancouver to Detroit will be um, a new service. So that's to connect with the Delta hub. So they have an interline agreement with WestJet and Delta. So that opens up a lot more of the U.S. And there's going to be more flights from Western Canada to both Las Vegas and Phoenix. And it's so funny because last weekend I was in Vegas on a WestJet flight. And two weeks before that, I was in Scottsdale. So flew into Phoenix. So um, it's great, great news for those of us who live here in in Western Canada, we're just getting a, a little few more options. And some of them had been cancelled because of COVID. Um, so it's good news. 
<laughs> it's almost like they're looking at your travel history and say, hey, we need more flights here. <laughs> yeah, well, they're popular routes. Um, but yes, it was quite funny. I looked at it, I'm like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've talked, uh, Clara, about unruly passengers, and I know those stories always make uh, people shake their heads. This one as well. Why? I don't know why people do this, but people that are pointing lasers at aircraft. Yeah, this is really, really dangerous. And I love the headline. It's not me. I'm just quoting it. <laughs> Dimwits spark record laser searches at planes. And um, this was uh, this was data from the FAA. So this was a surge in the U.S. last year. So laser strike aimed at aircraft surge 41% last year. They're basically saying that it, over 13,000 reports from pilots who can be blinded by those lights and that's scary because it puts everyone on the plane and everyone on the ground at risk. And in fact, FAA reported 313 injuries um, since 2010, basically since they started keeping record. So the surge they're saying, of, of course, at the end of the day, this is ultimately caused by the people, dimwits, they said, who use the devices. But they are, there's just wi more widespread availability. They become so inexpensive. You can buy them um, in stores. You can buy them online. But if you're choosing to use one of these, I really don't even know why you get one, Jill. Like, what? Why do you get one of these? Um, and point it at aircraft. It's dangerous. FAA actually can um, fine violators 11,000 US for each violation. So and criminal charges can be laid at the federal, state and local level. But it, it's really, really dangerous. I hope it, you know, and I know that there's been reports at YVR. If you have one of these lasers, just don't use it around aircraft. Yeah, don't point it anywhere near planes or uh, into the sky. Yeah, yeah 13,000 reports from pilots in the US is really, really scary. It's such a high number. And that's in one year. Hmm, interesting. All right. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully people get that message. I want to talk uh, as well about, uh, well, a couple of, of other stories, one where yeah. Canadians are traveling, but also this I thought was interesting, one, a cruise line saying they are not going to be going to Venice anymore. Yeah. So we've been hearing, of course, that Venice is going to be charging a fee to access that city. They're doing all sorts of things to um, eliminate the impact of tourism on that city. And one of the things that they are banning is any large cruise ships going into the lagoon. And what that means is that you would have to ten, um, anchor on a ship outside of the lagoon and tender in. And one uh, cruise line, which is Norwegian Cruise Line, is saying that they're not going to do that because that whole experience of anchoring and tendering in falls short of their standard that they aim to, aim to deliver. So they're going to be substituting places like Ravina, Italy, Zadar, Croatia, great ports, and it'll all be based on availability, but you're not going to be going into Venice. And I don't think this is going to be the only cruise line that's going to stop going to Venice this year until they improve the situation for um, the guest experience. Um, so Venice may be off your itinerary if you are traveling with Norwegian Cruise Line in 2024. And uh, like you said, expect uh, could potentially others uh, follow that as well. Uh, yeah. One other story, I think, before we get to, to the deals, and I'm glad you're talking about this today because I feel like everybody I talk to lately either knows somebody or they've just come back from Mexico that it has, I mean, it's always been a big destination, but it seems like more and more people are going there. 
Yeah, uh, Canadians seem to just love Mexico. Um, and I think primarily because of the all-inclusive experience, they've got great weather, it's really easy access from Vancouver because so many airlines are going, not just the legacy carriers like a WestJet and a, uh, uh, an Air Canada. There are companies that are going like Sunwing and um, some of the low-cost carriers are now getting into that market. So it's a, it's a relatively inexpensive, easy access getaway for us as Canadians. But the surge um, made this year was that over 4 million visitors that our Canadians visited in 2023, which is a massive number. So in the U.S., flights grew about 4.4% year over year. It was 59.5% surge in Canadian passengers flying into Mexico in 2023 versus 2022. So a huge number. And, and for good reason. I, I mean, I love Mexico as a destination. Oh, yeah. No, and uh, yeah, not a huge surprise. Uh, People love it, and the numbers show, uh, yes, very, very much so. Let's get to the deals, and I think we might even be talking about going to Mexico. Yeah, let's start with um, one, (laughs) and then it's so popular. It it might be the number one from Vancouver, um, and that's Puerto Vallarta. So there are dates since February, February 23rd, 25th, 28th, as well as March 5th and 6th. So these are all before spring break, um, but air and seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort, 1135, taxes of 490. Now, a lot of people like to go to the Caribbean, and we have not seen very many deals under the $1,000 base fare for Caribbean destinations other than Veradero, Cuba. But Punta Cana in the Dominican Republic, which has been really popular this year, there are two dates, March 4th, or April 29th, where I found air and seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort for $8.95. The taxes of $5.40 for that one. Um, do we have time for a couple of more? Sure. You keep me straight. Okay, <laughs> so a 16-night Hawaii cruise. This is really popular because it sails round trip from Vancouver. There's no airfare involved. So it's April the 14th, 16-night cruise, comes with an 85 US dollar onboard credit. So it crosses the Pacific, sails through the Hawaiian Islands, then crosses back to Vancouver, 1489, the taxes of 283. And then finally, unforgettable bucket list experience doing Peru and Machu Picchu. So this is a guided vacation. You will fly into Lima, spend some time there, then head over to Cusco, do the Sacred Valley before going up to Machu Picchu. You'll see Aqua Calientes as well. April the 14th through until November 18th, airfare, seven-night guided vacation. The domestic flights between Lima and Cusco, both ways. Accommodation, breakfast every day, sightseeing and transfers. I just think it's such an incredible deal to do this, 22-29. Um, mm-hmm. Again, April the 14th through until November 18th. All right, some great deals indeed. Claire, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you again next week. Sounds great. Talk to you then. Bye, Jill. <laughs>
Thank you, Joe. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your audience about Abel and its history. Well, congratulations, a hundred years. That is quite a feat. Well, you know, when you think about it, I mean, I'm the third generation. Uh, My daughter, Elizabeth, who is uh, elected to join the company, represents the fourth generation. And, you know, when I look back, I mean, uh, as a young man, 13 years of age, my father was taking me out looking at uh, clients and going and doing client visits. And I fell in love and impassioned with the industry as a young man. And when you think about, you know, our profession and what we do, you know, we're, we're out there protecting people's property and health. And, um, you know, the ravages of pests are, are t- tenacious in terms of what they do and the harm they cause and the stress they cause on people. So it, uh, it's, it's a profession I've fallen in love with. I've loved it all my life. And I've seen it. I've seen, I have personally seen 60 of those 100 years and, um, you know, my, I, I remember my grandfather vividly and my father vividly and the roles they played in the evolution of Abel. And I've watched it. You know, I've watched it grow and I've watched it. I've been, I participated in its growth. Hmm. And what are some of the things that stick out to you as far as how, has it changed a lot dealing with pest control or the ways that pests are controlled? Well, it, it, yes, it has. You know, uh, way, way back. Well, first of all, the, the process of pest control goes back to the antiquity of mankind. I mean, there's evidence of pest control devices, you know, in some of the, uh, the you know, the, the pyramids and dating back to, to the beginning of mankind. So um, all I can attest to is the period of time which I've observed. So, you know, as a young man, you know, the industry was more chemically based, whereas today it's more scientific. It's more about the biology. It's about understanding pests and the ravages. It's about modification of the habitat of homes, um, you know, proofing from rodents and pests. So, you know, the industry's evolved from, you know, chemical-based to science-based to behavioral-based, more about animal sciences and entomology. And, uh, you know, and our employees learn about, you know, the, the biology and how to control these um, the, the ravages of pests just using modern science. And I think that's how the industry's evolved. I'm particularly pleased to see the amount of women that we've attracted in our company. Um, you know, it's a profession that, that, that basically isn't physically demanding, and it requires you know, skills and knowledge and, um, and and to see the amount of women that are participating in pest control today, I think is encouraging. Hmm. Do you think it gets a, a bad rep as far as dealing with, with creepy crawlies, whether it's, say, silverfish or rats or, I mean, the whole the whole issue is getting rid of pests and such. Does it get, do people maybe shy away from it to, because of that? Well, I, I think there's a revulsion, um, and unfortunately, there's a stigma associated with it, uh, which is not fair to, to, to the average homeowner. I mean, pests will invade anybody, any home, any income bracket, any culture. It, 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 they don't choose their victims. They don't. They're tenacious. They're, liver, they're, they're a life form. They want to survive, and, and they do, and they're very successful at it. I mean, for example, the cockroach has seen the dinosaurs come and go, and we'll probably see, you know, mm-hmm. Many species come and go, and, and they've evolved over the years to, to be survivors, regardless of the environment and the changes in the environment. So, so we're really tackling a very tough beast when you think about it. But I, want, I, think, I think your audience should understand is that, that the process of pest control basically is prevention today. Whereas in the past, you know, we were regarded as exterminators. We were exterminating, you know, a, a pest. Today, really, it's about habitat modification, modifying a home, creating environments that are not conducive to pests so that basically we can prevent pests rather than, than, than you know, becoming exterminators. So the industry's evolved to that, and, and, and I think that's a good process. And I think the public's become more and more aware 
and, and we've helped to, to, to develop that awareness of some of the diseases that are associated and vectored by pests. Like, for example, the cockroach is a, is, is a vector of listeriosis and bacterial diseases. Uh, rodents can be vectors of, of, of human-borne diseases as well, too. So I think the more the public becomes aware of the importance of pest prevention, uh, you know, I, I think it's good. It's a good process. And, and, you know, we're a valuable and essential service that helps to protect people and their property. So um, it gives me great comfort to know that this is a kind of service that we're providing, uh, you know, for society. Interesting when you said that as well, that going from being called an exterminator to pest control, is that because it has shifted as well to, to more friendly ways of dealing with pests or more humane ways? Well, exactly. As I said, like to give you an example of the transition, um, think about mosquito abatement for an example. You know, in the past, uh, you know, co- companies would just sit there and fog or spray, and 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 what it would do is it would end up killing every single insect, um, you know, in sight. And and today, when you think about it, I mean, there's a lot of natural predation to insect to, to to mosquitoes, like the dragonflies, an absolutely gorgeous, beautiful. A beneficial insect and unfortunately some of the old technology you know companies that are still fogging and spraying they're, they're killing beneficial insects we take a different approach we, we look at the whole holistic approach we look at the biology we look at the whole ecosystem um, we have a greater appreciation and respect for how it all balances out and what role we can play in creating a proper balance you see the environment within a home or a restaurant or food plant these are unnatural environments of warmth and moisture, um, and, and and we're creating these environments that are conducive to pest, uh, you know, d- development, and, and and I think we're helping to create an understanding of how to prevent these environments, how to prevent pests rather than controlling pests. That's that's how the industry, and I think we're pioneers and leaders in these technologies. Yeah, and interesting when you mentioned that too, and talked about how cockroaches have evolved and stayed around. Um, I, I mean, that kind of is a good thing too, isn't it? In that if they were eradicated, if we didn't have things like cockroaches, bed bugs, rats, you'd be out of a job. Yeah, well, you know, the bed bug is, you know, the bed bug was almost eliminated, um, you know, many, many years ago, but it's having a resurgence as a result of international travel. We've become a, a global world. And with the migration of people throughout the world, the bed bug has come back with, a, with an absolute vengeance. And it is a parasite that does parasitize the human it needs a blood meal you know this an interesting fact you can you go into a hotel room that hasn't been occupied for you know four or five months a bed bug can survive for up to six months without a blood meal when you go in that vacant room it's hungry and it's ready for you so um you know these are parasitosis uh is is vicious and uh these are these are some of the things that we do we protect hotels we protect motels we protect people's homes from these kind of pests Well, I am uh, so glad you were able to join us today and talk more about this. And John, uh, again, congratulations uh, on the uh, the, uh, company making it 100 years. Thank you so much for your time. Well, I appreciate it. And, you know, when you think about it, 100 years, there's there's less than one half of 1% of Canadian companies survived the four generations. And and it gives me great pleasure. And I hope we can survive at least another 100 years through... uh, you know, through 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 just doing exactly what we've been doing and, and treating and helping the Canadian society protect itself. Well, uh, thank you again so much for being with us. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.